Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. Hello, Kalia here. Before the episode today, I wanted to take a quick minute to give an update about the podcast and place the episode you're about to hear in context. This episode was recorded in early December 2019. Shortly after recording, but before it could get edited, I had a massive glaucoma flare-up and basically lost a good portion of my vision for several weeks. This was understandably scary, and editing took a back seat while trying to find the right combination of meds, drops, and pills to get some of my vision back. And yeah, it's really affected my holidays. So finally, by late January, my vision was getting back to the level of being usable, but the side effects of the meds were a whole other thing. Those took about another month to mellow out so that I wasn't in constant pain or feeling nauseous all the time. Which brings us to March. And well, the first half of March was busy trying to catch up on all the things that hadn't gotten done since December. And then, right as I was getting ready to edit and post this episode and start recording other episodes, well, COVID-19 happened. And also, my headphones and computer decided to have major issues. So as I record this now, in early April, we are fully entrenched in the pandemic, fully ensconced in our homes, sheltering in place, and to be honest, my motivation has been suffering. I don't have that much extra time on my hands because I'm now homeschooling a second grader and cooking and cleaning way more than I used to, and I was feeling really down in the dumps, like really, getting borderline depressed. But you know what helped pull me out of that? You know what helped keep me sane and laughing and gave me something to look forward to every week? Podcasts. Specifically, the Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast and the Mission Log podcast have been lifesavers for me, and while I know I don't have the reach, the fan base, or the awesomeness of them, I thought... If me and my silly rants about books and movies can make even a few people laugh in this time of upheaval and loneliness, well, that's a thing worth doing. So today's episode was recorded last year, but next week I will be recording again, and then recording again. New episodes will be popping up in your feed again. I'm working on ways to utilize the tech I have access to, and I'm going to keep reading, watching, and discussing. Thank you all for sticking around. I hope you continue to be part of the Pages and Popcorn fanbase. Please reach out to me on Facebook if you want. And without further ado, let's get to the episode.
It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we... Kalia and Jennifer, two huge book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing the 1990 novel, L.A. Confidential, which was made into the movie in 1997 of the same name. But first, I want to remind you and all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a web where you can find sources, references, show notes, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. So no matter how you do the social media thing, you can connect with us. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And we really want to encourage you to rate us and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. And as always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. A dollar a month or five, if you're feeling especially generous, helps us keep doing this. And... We love doing this! Actually, sometimes we do. (laughs) This time, we do. Do we do our, uh, how did we come to it before the recap? I can't remember. Um, I saw the movie and thought it was okay at the time because it was in 97 and I was like, yeah, it it was an okay film at the time. It got a lot of reviews and then I found out, oh, hey, it's a novel and then we did it for the podcast. Wow. Okay. You just thought the movie was okay? Well, at the time. Oh. Because I had the same response to a number of films, and then later on when I rewatched them, I went, oh, that was much better or worse than I had originally thought. Okay. But I was going to save that for when we get into it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that this was a movie, vaguely, and I knew it was based on a book, vaguely, and so it was on our list, and when I mentioned to my partner that we were doing this, he said, oh yeah, remember we watched that movie? I really liked that movie. And I said, we didn't watch that movie. And he said, yeah, we totally watched that movie together. And I was like, no, I don't. Like, in a group, in a tiny TV with 12 other people talking and stuff, other stuff going on? He's like, no, when we were dating, we like sat down and watched this movie because I really liked it. Really? Yes. He swears this happened. I still, I don't know. As I was watching the movie... Okay, so I read the book, and I was still like, I don't think I've seen this movie. I am really sure I have not seen this movie. And then I watched the movie, and I was like, oh, okay, there was a couple little moments where I was like, that is vaguely familiar. But, and they were things that were in the movie that weren't in the book. So he's obviously right. You're obviously right, and I love you. But... Is this I, during Kaylee's high party days? No, no. <laughs> and I, I don't know if we watched it, and I, like, secretly fell asleep, and then was like, oh, yeah, that was great. Or, like... If I just have blocked it out because I've seen too many things, or maybe I'm a goldfish, like, this could be a thing. Maybe maybe secretly I'm a goldfish, and I just don't know, because if I knew, I would forget. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, apparently I've seen the movie more than once now, but the, my most recent viewing was very recent, and I greatly enjoyed it. So, there we go. Okay, so I'm going to do our recap. The book. The story revolves around several Los Angeles police department officers in the early 1950s who come embroiled in a mix of sex, corruption, and murder following a massacre at the Night Owl coffee shop. The story eventually encompasses organized crime, political corruption, heroin trafficking, pornography, prostitution, and Hollywood. 
Our protagonists include Edmund Exley, Ed Exley, the son of legendary detective Preston Exley. Ed is a straight arrow who informs on other officers in a police brutality scandal. This is scandal number one. This is Bloody Christmas, wherein drunk cops beat up jailed criminals as an act of reprisal for fellow officers getting beat up. It is a vicious cycle. During this mayhem, Ed is locked in a closet, and he writes out three different summaries of the situation, because he is very political. He is basically like, okay guys, here's the truth, and here's another version, and here's another version of the truth that will help my career and help the department save face. Again, he is pure politics. His father, Preston, was a police bigwig who has retired and now works construction. His big case was catching a child killer who liked to dismember his victims. He's also best friends with Walt Disney. I'm sorry, I mean Ray Dirtling, who's basically Walt Disney, who has this Dreamland amusement park, Disneyland, and who runs a stable of kid actors, including actors who play such roles as Moochie Mouse, and there's also a duck. Again, frickin' Disney. Ray and Preston Exley can bond over the fact that they both have lost a son, because Ray's son Paul was killed on a hiking trip, and Preston's eldest, who's also Edmund's older brother, was shot in the line of duty. Oh, obviously, he was also a cop. So, Edmund has a big old shadow to live under, and he has a secret in his closet. He obtained his war hero status and medal under false pretenses, because he was an opportunist at then as now, and we rejoin him now as he tries to figure out how to spin the bloody Christmas to his best career advancement advantages. Ultimately, what happens is the cops involved in the holiday smackdown, the officer Dick Stems gets jail time, his partner Bud gets in trouble and now hates Edmund, the Big V, or Jack Vincennes, gets taken off of Narco and put into Vice. Quick sidebar about these guys. Vincennes is a recovering drug user. His skeleton in his closet is that he killed two innocent people while high years ago. He acts more like a celebrity than a cop. He's a technical advisor on a police procedural television show called Badge of Honor, similar to the real-life Dragnet, and he provides tips to a scandal magazine called Hush Hush, who's run by a slimeball named Sid. If that's not enough characters for you, here's some more. Wendell, Bud White, is an intimidating enforcer cop with a personal fixation on men who abuse women. His dark secret is that his dad chained him to a radiator and then beat his mom to death, then left the kid to starve while watching his mother decompose. So, Bud is a little twitchy about domestic violence issues. Anyway, Edmund gets promoted after the bloody Christmas thing. Dudley Smith is an Irishman who's good friends with all the higher-ups, and, and he has been introduced now, along with Lowe, who is the district attorney, because we need more characters. Okay, whatever. Dudley Smith is taking Bud under his wing to do enforcer-type shit, like beat people up on the regular. And the big V, Vincennes, is moved to Vice. He loses his hush-hush job and his badge of honor job connections, so he's also not a big fan of Edmund. Okay, time goes by. And a bloody shootout happens in which six people are massacred in an all-night cafe. The city is an uproar, and the police bring in three black youths and railroad them a bit. Edmund is apparently very smart and very good at interrogations. He pits them against one another and gets the idea that they didn't actually do it, but things are moving too fast and they need a scapegoat and Dudley Smith is out for blood. Edmund investigates what they were really doing alongside Bud and it turns out they were busy gang raping a girl named Inez. Bud loses his shit and runs off to rescue her, killing the guy that she was being held with in the process. The thing is, now Inez could alibi the black use, but she is in love with Bud and hates Edmund and won't talk. Edmund begins the long con slash fall in love with her and sets her up, introduces her to his dad and to Ray, gets her a job. I mean, he can't marry her. She's Mexican after all. But 
Well, yeah. Okay, so now the youths can't be alibied for the night owl killing, so despite his misgivings, Edmund allows them to be prosecuted, but oh no, they escape, and then he is part of the team that finds them, and he participates in killing them, telling everyone that they confessed before they died, and he gets himself more honor status and another promotion. Time passes. There is a series of unsolved and barely noticed prostitute slayings. They're haunting Bud White. Meanwhile, Vicinus is languishing in vice, and he's married to a lovely lady named Karen, but he is dispiritly investigating a porn ring. Everything and everyone ties to everything and everyone else. Inez, that Mexican girl who was raped, sometimes sleeps with Bud while sometimes sleeping with Edmund. These guys really hate one another. Things just get overly complicated from there. There's a ring of high-class call girls who have plastic surgery to look like famous actresses, and then this whole thing is run by a new character named Pierce Pratchett. One of his whores is Veronica Lake, or rather, Lynn, and Bud falls for her, and they start a relationship. At one point during his investigation about something, maybe, Edmund sleeps with her, and then Bud hits her because of that, and then she forgives him, and it's all very unsettling. And I'm going to skip around a little bit. Turns out that the smut porn mags are connected to heroin, and that's connected to dead hookers, and that's connected to mob stuff, and one of the people who died in the Night Owl coffee shop was a former cop. One other... One of the victims was impersonating some other random ruffian, and one was the girlfriend of a guy, whatever. Anyways, and then there was the staff member. It's very complicated. So Sid, the hush-hush guy, is killed and mutilated, making Edmund start to wonder if his father's collar all those years ago was actually valid. The upshot is that Jack and Edmund eventually team up and then eventually get Bud on their side because, again, everything is connected. Edmund figures out most of it, but he needs a few long-winded confessions towards the end. Turns out, Ray Dirtling, Dirtling, Ray, Walt Disney, had an illegitimate son who was the secret partner with the psycho that Preston had arrested all those years ago for the child killing. Ray had his kid get plastic surgery and kept him on special drugs. Drugs provided Pierce Pratchett as part of his heroin and fancy call girl and smut rackets. Edmund puts the sad, very sick killer into a ward in a hospital with the doctor who did the surgery, and he will be well taken care of for the rest of his life. Edmund is going to tell. He gives Ray and Preston a few days to figure out what they want to do, and what they do is commit suicide, along with Inez, because she's really mad at Edmund for ruining her life, or something. Okay, so they're all dead. The child killer is dealt with, but there's still Pierce Pratchett and the mob guys and the mystery guy killing hookers in horrible ways. Turns out, there's a prison break planned, and everything culminates here, and Bud, in a really nasty graphic sort of way, takes out the hooker killer and almost dies. The big V gets shot almost as an afterthought and dies. Edmund gets lots of credit and a big ol' promotion. But wait! Edmund has realized, along with Bud, that Dudley Smith is the mastermind behind all the mob stuff, and he did his own fair share of killings. But they have no evidence. So guess that can be solved in the next book in the series, because guess what? This is a book in a series! Anyways, Bud and Lynn ride off into the sunset. And yes... I skipped several side plots, several murders, several shakedowns, a lot of characters because, oh my god, this book was 500 pages long and overly complicated, even though it was awesome. You really needed a chart for all the characters. seriously. Because because (laughs) Elroy would mention somebody in maybe page 150 and then not reference that person for 300 pages, but you still have to know that person. Also... I'm just going to, I mean, we're going to talk about this more. This yeah. book is written in freaking slang. It is slang, 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 and there are no adjectives. <laughs> and it is, it, it takes you a while. It took me 
a couple of chapters to kind of get into the swing and I couldn't I couldn't put it down not because I was so compelled I mean I was I was interested but also because if you lose the pattern and the pattern of the words and the way that everybody talks and you start to do something else and you I don't know go watch the L word or Buffy the Vampire Slayer you come back and you're so confused yeah so I, I think it was described <sighs> as like jazz or rat-a-tap-tap sort of oh, writing oh, style jazz so okay um, a, a quick fun side note this book was originally 800 pages and his publisher said, just for, you know, financial purposes, no. Oh, I thought you were going to call Just no. <laughs> his publisher said, no. Well, for, for, financial purposes, for financial purposes, you have to cut this down. So he just went through and deleted everything that wasn't completely plot oriented. I don't know. I still feel like there was some stuff in there that was oh, not yeah. completely plot oriented. Which, there, there which brings us to the adaptation that happened, which is the movie. Okay. So, the movie. Three main guys, still, Edmund, Bud, and Vincennes, are pretty much the same. The bloody Christmas stuff is pretty much the same. The shootings at the night all are pretty much the same, with the three black youths being railroaded and they're being down about their alibi and Inez's character getting rescued by Bud. But there's no Preston, no Ray. More of the DA and okay, the story takes a very strange turn. So, here is my official recap. In the early 1950s, Los Angeles... Police Department, Sergeant Edmund Ed Exley, son of legendary LAPD detective Preston Exley, who is determined is determined to live up to his dead father's reputation. His intelligence, insistence on following regulations, and cold demeanor isolate him from other officers. He testifies in the bloody Christmas case against his fellow officers in exchange for a promotion. This goes against Captain Dudley Smith's advice that a detective should be willing to shoot a guilty man in the back for the greater good, and plant evidence, and do all sorts of shady things. Exley's ambition is fueled by the murder of his father, killed by an unknown assailant whom Exley has personally nicknamed Rolo Tomasi. Officer Wendell Bud White, whom Exley considers a mindless thug, is a plainclothes officer obsessed with violently punishing women beaters. At one point, he confronts a former cop named Leland Buzz Meeks, who's a driver for rich guy Pierce Pratchett, who runs Fleur de Lis, the call girl service, running prostitutes altered by plastic surgery to resemble film stars. White dislikes Exley after White's partner, Dick Stens, is fired due to Exley's testimony in the Bloody Christmas debacle. Dudley Smith later recruits White to torture out-of-town criminals in an attempt to gain a foothold on the Los Angeles mob scene because the big mobster guy isn't busy in jail. Enter the Night Owl Massacre, where six people are killed, including White's old partner, Stens. Three African Americans are charged with the Night Owl murders based on their shotguns being found by Dudley Smith's friends' cops. Edmund invest interrogates them, and he is brilliant, and he finds out about Inez's gang rape and that they might have an alibi, but the youth escape from custody and are later killed in a shootout. Edmund gets hero status for his involvement in the shootings of these unarmed men. Same thing with Bud rescuing Inez and killing the guy who was holding her, and also Inez being unwilling to help the investigation or alibi the black youth. Exit Inez from the entire story. Exley and White individually continue to investigate the Night Owl robbery massacre to discover indications of corruption all around them. White recognizes the Night Owl victim, Susan, as one of Pierce's escorts. During the investigation, he meets and then starts a relationship with Lynn, the Veronica Lake lookalike prostitute. The body count rises when White searches the crawl space under the dead Susan's mother's house, finding the decomposed corpse of Meeks. Remember Meeks? He was the driver. Sergeant Jack Vincennes, by the way, is an narcotics detective who moonlights as a technical advisor on Badge of Honor, a TV police drama series. He provides Sid, the publisher of the Hush Hush tabloid, with tips about celebrity arrests that will affect more and attract more readers. At one point, Vincennes becomes involved in Sid's scheme to set up the young actor in a homosexual tryst with the L.A. District Attorney Ellis Lowe. 
He has second thoughts, though, and he tries to stop the setup, but finds the young actor dead. He is determined to find the real killer. He and Edmund team up, but then Edmund is too busy having sex with Bud's main squeeze, Lynn, so Vincennes goes to Captain Dudley Smith to discuss the evidence, and Smith frickin' shoots Vincennes in the chest, because apparently he's the bad guy. Vincennes dies after uttering the name Rolo Tomasi, the origin of which Exley had told him earlier, in confidence. So Exley's suspicions are aroused when Dudley Smith asks him, Hey, do you know who Rolo Tomasi is? He starts to realize that Dudley, Dudley might not be on the up and up. He might be a bad guy. During an interrogation of Sid, Smith arranges for White to see photos of Lynn having sex with Exley, which sends White into a rage and prompts him to go after Exley. Shortly afterwards, Smith kills Sid. Yep, definitely the bad guy. Exley discovers Meek and Stans used to work closely with Dudley Smith. White drives to Lynn's, confronts her, hits her a few times, then finds Edmund at the police station and they fight. Edmund points out that Dudley made White mad at him and mad at him on purpose. They realize that Dudley Smith is corrupt and scheming to take over the heroin empire. They decide to work together in order to take down Smith. After gaining evidence against Smith by threatening the DA, Ellis Lowe, by hanging him out of the window and a good cop, bad cop routine, the two find Pierce Pratchett, who's also been murdered, and they deduce that Smith is tying up his loose ends. They separate briefly and Edmund apologizes to Lynn, and then they end up in a trap set by Smith and his hitman. Oh no, it's a massive gunfight. It kills all of the hitman. Smith appears and shoots White in the face, then phases off with Exley. But White, still alive somehow, helps Edmund get the upper hand, and Edmund pretends that he will be political and let Dudley go. But then he kills Dudley by shooting him in the back. At the police station, Exley narrates Smith's criminal activities to explain the events that he had covered while he and Vincennes and White were doing their investigation. In true Edmund fashion, he suggests a way to save the LAPD face and help his own career. The LAPD cover up Smith's crimes by saying that he died in the shootout. To protect the department's image, he is claimed to be a hero. In exchange, Exley is also claimed to be a hero, and he receives another medal for his bravery and another promotion. Lynn is there to say goodbye. Turns out that Bud didn't die after all, and she has forgiven him for punching her, so Edmund and Bud have a nice, manly moment full of looks and nods, and then Bud and Lynn drive off into the sunset. The end. Holy crap! It's like, started the same, and then went a whole other way. And I have some thoughts about that. But, whew! Yeah, so I had a kind of a similar line to your face-face thing, and that was um, with the Hush Hush journalist. But Smith was setting butt up, and Mr. Hush Hush is permanently hushed. <laughs> yeah, yes. I couldn't help but do a couple of those just because you want to see dames with the... Mm. Yeah. Okay, so before... She was a dame with all the legs in all the right places. Although she wore really long dresses. We didn't really get to see too much of Kim Basinger's legs. But... We did get a nice back. Oh, yes. We got got her braless back. For sure. So let's talk about the casting, because we're doing it. This this movie is full of people. We got Russell Crowe as Bud White. We've got the guy who was the farmer and babe as Dudley Smith, which was cool. Also, James he was... Crowell? Yes. And because <laughs> because I have to like tie this into Star Trek in any way possible, so he was also Zephyr Cochran who invented Warp Drive. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then we have... Um, Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce as Edmund Exley. And we have Kevin Spacey as the big V and... A, crap ton of other famous people all just i mean it was a stellar cast i thought this was cast pitch perfect yes 
I agree. Like, Guy Pierce has that look to him. He's got that straight lace. You totally believe him as that. Oh, and those cheekbones. Kevin Spacey does have that kind of smarmy cast. And now that we know a little bit more about him, yeah, that was kind of perfect casting in a lot of ways. The one I thought was actually really hilarious was Danny DeVito. Yes, Danny DeVito as Sid, which in the book he was supposed to be tall and stuff. And, and he was like scarily skinny and yeah. super tall. And But Danny DeVito does such a great job. I mean, he's such a of perfect little st- troll when he wants to be. Okay, so um, here's an interesting little thing. So producers were originally against casting two Australians as the American period piece. But then Pierce, Guy Pierce, wirely commented in a later interview that while both he and Russell Crowe grew up in Australia, he is British by birth and Crowe is New Zealander. So, there. Besides their national origins, both Crow and Pierce were relative unknowns in North America at the time, though. So, so for all of you people who think that they were both Australians, you're wrong. La la la. I, I thought that the casting was great. And, and that kind of goes to the adaptation. I, I really thought that the adaptation was very well done. The book was, was good, I will say. Like, it, it, was, it was, I thought it was too long and too complicated. But I definitely was there for it and... And I, I enjoyed it well enough. I just wish it had been a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. But the movie was outstanding. And I really liked the whole idea of their adaptation and what they left in and what they changed and stuff. There's a couple things I didn't like their changes of. There's two major ones. But other than that, I thought their adaptation was really good. and Very streamlined. Yes, exactly. They preserved the basic integrity of the book and its main theme. Uh, they took a work of fiction that had eight plot lines, reduced them to three, and retained the dramatic force of the three men working on their destiny. Although Elroy did not like the adaptation, the author himself, saying it is about as deep as a tortilla, and if you watch the action of the movie, it does not make dramatic sense. So Elroy is an interesting character. Um, yeah, he's actually got quite the backstory himself. Yes, and I don't want to get too in the weeds with that. But I will say that he grew up reading Raymond Chandler, and then when people compare his stuff to Raymond Chandler... This is his quote. Raymond Chandler is the most overrated writer of the American canon. Remember, this is Elroy, not me. Raymond Chandler sucks chihuahua dicks. So that's tacky. Yeah, it does kind of sound like his novels, though. His preference is for Dashiell Hammett, the creator of Sam Spade. Hammett wrote the kind of man that he was afraid that he was. Chandler wrote the kind of guy he wished he were. Okay, dude, who are you writing? (laughs) Okay, but just a little background, and it's going to be very quick on Elroy. Um, When he was 10, this would be in 1958, his mother was murdered, and he became an alcoholic and a drug user, and then cleaned his life out later on. But he does have some reason to maybe be connected to a lot of, or at least have an interest in crime. An interest in crime? Yes. Yeah, sure. There's a couple major changes that I wish that they hadn't done, although I can understand time, blah, blah, blah. And one was the change of Jack. So Vincennes, in the book, he was just much bigger, a much bigger role. He was really a side plot. And I don't know if that's because there's this rumor that Kevin Spacey was like, I don't like this character, so I want to tone it down, these certain things, and make him not a drug dealer and, and have him have that conscious of you know crisis of conscience and stuff. And so he had them kind of change Jack a little bit and then clean him up a bit right and because Kevin Spacey wanted to play that different role and the other thing is that they were really marketing this with Kevin Spacey and then he dies like you know not at the very end like he dies in the book if you blink you'll miss you his death you miss his death it's like boom and he and okay it. also it's, it's, in the book he had a whole thing with his wife and their, their marriage yeah. was on the rocks and then, then they were kind of coming back together and he had this whole side plot about getting kind of falling off the wagon but then he gets his whole redemptive arc 
And then he dies. So his death is tragic. It's not shocking. In the movie, his death was like, oh, now we know who the bad guy is. The end. In the mo- in the book, his death was tragic because yeah. it was so fast and he had come at the end of his arc and he was being so brave. And it's Ugh. almost, there, there's no almost purpose to it. You know, it, it's just one of those things that, that happens. And that was a deliberate choice on Elroy of just, sometimes things just happen. You know, yeah. cops die and that's their whole life. That was it. It's gone. Yeah. But it's it's shocking as a reader because you do expect a character, if they are going to die, to have it, you know, mean something more than just boom, it's done. But not just one half yeah. sentence. Like, they open a door, someone shot him in his face, he spun, and then it just keeps going. Yeah. Like, that's the end. Like, it's just, it never even really circles back to it. And, um, yeah. So the other thing about the novel is that it does take place over years. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, you know, vastly condensed for the movie. So there's a lot of arcs. Like, Ed, um, Ed has, he is involved with the Inez. Uh-huh. And, you know, her character is like, uh, with a different author. And looking at how Elroy talks, like his characters, I don't think that he was intentionally doing something for our, for ironic purposes. You know, women are treated like commodities. Mm-hmm. And Inez, this one really bothered me. She was a college student. She was doing all these things with her life. She wasn't just... I don't know. I mean, I, it just really bothered me. And she's just used as sex fodder for these two guys. Oh, she's Mexican. You can't marry her because it won't. So with another author who had maybe a little bit more self-awareness, that could have been an interesting commentary. What I found interesting was that he made her a college student as if like she was getting punished for, you know, stepping above to, her uh, class. Right. Exactly. Because didn't, he didn't have to add that tiny little detail. She could have just been a Mexican girl who'd gotten picked up and was horribly gang raped by multiple men. I guess that's the definition of gang rape, but you know, lots of guys and was, was parceled around and they, they did all the things, all the horrible things to her. And, um, you know, she was horribly traumatized. Yeah. She has this line when she's talking to, or she's confronting Ed when he's confronting her. Well, you slept with Bud. And she's like, well, he doesn't treat me like a rape victim. That's a very masculine way of looking at how women deal with rape. And also it's interesting because Bud was the one who quote-unquote rescued her. He was the one who found her on the bed and and shot the guy that, you know, was there in the apartment and all of this stuff. So he was like her knight in shining armor, but then he didn't treat her like a rape victim. He was basically sleeping with her to get back at Edmund, but she doesn't see it that way somehow. You know, I mean... I, yeah, I I did not like the way she was. And then it was like, then she became good friends with Edmund's father, which was a little okay, and really good friends with Walt Disney. I'm sorry, Ray. And then, and then commits suicide at the end with them and is mad at Edmund. That was so... Was like, what? Yeah, what? that was a major what-the-fuck ending. Yeah. Oh, of by all of them the committing way, suicide together. I, yeah, and that whole thing... I liked the idea of Edmund starting to go, oh my god, maybe my father's case was there was corruption there. Maybe he got the wrong person and built his whole career. And did he get the wrong person on purpose? Did he railroad people like I have done in my career? Or was it a legitimate mistake? And he's like afraid to find out. There's a scene in the book where Edmund plays Russian roulette with himself. Like he is so traumatized about having to face his father and maybe potentially ruin his father's career and ruin his O's that he almost commits suicide. And then he doesn't. And then, he, you know, he tells his father and then he gives his father basically time and an out to, like, figure something out. And then this is how he does it. He commits suicide. And it's just... And, and it turns out that his father 
didn't, it wasn't a corruption bad caller. He went with the evidence that he had. It was Ray um, who had given him bad information and who had killed his own son. Oh my God. Yes. It just, uh, well, and then I also left out in the book, there was so, and we talked about the jargon, but there was so many homophobic slurs oh yeah and racial, racial and homo- slurs yeah, they were everywhere oh man it makes you feel like taking a shower after reading is really bad yeah Blah. i mean and having reading this one on the heels of reading uh and, and the band, band played on was uh whew, okay anyways yeah, so this the whole other storyline, and then like you said, like the ending was just crazy pants. Like, oh, this guy was the killer, and this was the killer's partner, and this guy's now been on drugs, and he had cosmetic surgery, and everybody can have cosmetic surgery, and then look dramatically different, and then that's with the prostitutes too, and it just on and on and on, just plot after plot after plot that just wasn't wasn't necessary. You know, as as we were talking about, one of this is kind of a side plot in, mm-hmm. in a weird sort of thing um we willie or willie winkle i can't remember yeah it was so there's a child actor who was taken and killed by by walt disney's son and and his partner atherton yeah and they do these really just odd things like they they sew wings to his back and i was thinking if this were one of the silence of the lamb films that would have been its own sort of subplot they would have gone really into that because we know from the start Smith is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Smith kills Meeks. There's, there's no secret there. It's more... Smith kills Meeks? Meeks is in the movie and not... And not... In the book. The first chapter of the book is Meeks. I Okay, I just obviously forgot okay. because there are too many characters and people and things. <laughs> I thought we start off with Bud and the Christmas, like, beating up the... And his whole backstory about beating up the domestic violence people. Yeah, Buzz Meeks. He's the first chapter. Oh, is is that the prologue, though? That's, I think that's the first chapter. Yeah, no, it's the prologue. Okay, so in the prologue, so the prologue is, but and that guy, that that's like a whole mob part with the heroine, and like you could really just lift that out, and it doesn't. I I think that that was there to tie it into whatever book had come before this, because this is part so of this the series. is three of four books. Yeah, yeah, third in the series. So so you can read it as a standalone. I've read um, some reviews that say you should read it as part of the series because characters come in and out. <laughs> you think? But yeah, there's <laughs> there's so many characters, too many characters, and I thought it was an interesting choice to make Lynn's character more prominent in the movie because you do have some female characters. I thought Jack Jack's relationship with was Karen, it Karen mm-hmm. had a lot of potentially interesting things going on, and it was just it feels like part of the themes in this novel is the failure of relationships. Okay. You know, nobody has a happy relationship. Whereas in the movie, it's kind of a schlocky Hollywood. Well, they're they're going to have a romantic time in Arizona. Yeah, it's okay that he hits you. You deserved it because you slept with somebody. Yeah. I mean, you are a prostitute. That is what you do. But this guy in particular, it was bad, and he's going to hit you, and you're okay with that because for some reason. Oh, so that's the thing. But in the book, I found more sympathetic than but in the movie, and part of why was because he knows that he is not smart. He's just the strong man. And he doesn't like that. He's frustrated by those limitations. So he basically, as, as it progresses, he gets smarter in the novel. He goes to school to learn detective skills and keeps taking these tests so that he can get the skills that he needs to solve these murders that nobody else is paying attention to. And I love that. Like, he was 
growing and changing. And Vincennes was growing and changing and falling off the wagon and then getting better. And like, they both had these really interesting arcs that were very much left out. The other thing we left out was Exley's like secret. Like, you know, we got... Oh, okay. So yeah, as a war hero. Right. Well, well, first we get Bud's secret because he tells it pillow talk, which is a lovely pillow talk to talk about your mother dying and being and decomposing. And, but we don't get anybody else's secret. We don't get a secret from Vincennes. He didn't accidentally kill people while high. Like that's completely gone. And then Exley's secret. Go ahead. I know you want to say. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't, I don't want to be all the talking. So yes. All right. So he was a decorated war vet. However, what really happened... And he says, well, they, you know, there's one story and this is I'm a war vet. And the other story is he was just a scared soldier. He came across a bunch of bodies. He decided to torch them and pretend that he had killed them. Yeah. And, and that's how credit. he got his war decoration. And this is this is pure Exley Edmund who has the multiple versions of the truth. Yeah. Like the fact that in The Bloody Christmas, he sat down and he's like, here's truth one, here's truth two, here's truth three. Like truth is whatever the people in power want it to be. I think that's a theme in this because the LAPD has to like look good. Part of it is that badge of honor thing. And part of it is like to hide their own corruption and, you know. I thought his character was a really interesting meld of political and straight laced. Mm-hmm. Because he is a political animal. He's very ambitious. Like he's he says he's there for justice, but he's not. He's really there for ambition. He's got a massive inferiority complex too. Yes, he, you know, with the war hero thing, with his father, with his brother who outperformed him, mm-hmm. and yeah. then died young and in the line of duty. So like basically now you can never compete with that unless you die in the line of and duty. Even his father was just like, you don't have the stomach for this. And they kept all of his his father, his uncle, all these people are like, no, 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 you're not a detective. You're you're book smarts. You're not street smart. I don't know. Like they were just like, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. We don't think that that's good so for I you. And lose your glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then Jack has that one line, you know, take out the, the hanging threads on your suit. You'll look like a rube. Yes, exactly. And he does. Like, he, you know. Yeah, so he looks a little bit like Howdy Doody when it begins. Yeah, he's he's not great. But he... he but I always... I just he knows how to play the game, for You sure. always see politics and corruption linked together. So I thought that was a kind of an interesting change-up for a character. Of somebody who is very by the book, and yet very political. Yes. Ambitious. I mean, that's the thing. He and he, po- he is very good at playing people, at playing situations. Mm-hmm. And they, they talk about that. He's like really good at interrogations and knowing how to play, pit people against one another. And and that's one of the scenes I actually really liked was, okay, I'm going to get this thing. I'm going to make you say this thing. I'm going to lead you up there. I'm going to let this little section be heard by the other guy. Mm-hmm. And then he'll watch somebody and he's like, oh, he twitched. Yes. That's his soft spot, and he'll just dig and dig and dig into it. Yeah, being able to tell when people are lying or when people don't know information that you're giving them. Yeah, he was very wired into that, for sure. Yeah. So they do make it one great cop at the end. Yeah. When Bud and Ed get together, it's... Well, and I thought that the movie did... I mean, they, they didn't have as much of Bud learning. But what they did in the movie was Bud was not as dumb as he thought he was, and Exley was not as weak as he thought he was in the movie. And so in both of them, Exley gets tougher as the movie goes on and, like, kills more people and is more masculine. And Bud gets smarter and puts things together and kind of figures things out as the movie goes on. So, yes, by the end, they are, like, this good, one good version of a cop. 
And then that just leaves Jack out completely. <laughs> well, Jack was killed when they... Because in the book, that or in the movie, that's what they decided to do. I think for shock value. And also to like show us that Dudley Smith was really bad. And then and then in the in the book, Dudley Smith kind of gets away with it. Oh yeah, he totally gets away with he's it. He's fine. He's, he's not murdered. He's, he, not even under investigation. Like, Exley yeah. knows... But he's got his own stuff wrapped up that Dudley knows. So, like, you have this whole thing about... I think Ed is going to play the long game on this one. Oh, for sure. And my money would be on him, definitely, because he is brainy. And I'm glad we didn't have another 300 pages where we <laughs> saw that happen. I'm okay with not... Well, that's the next book. I'm sure. I'm that sure. we haven't read because we have enough homework to do with yes. <laughs> Exactly. So one of the scenes I really liked in the book that I'm, that I'm glad that they didn't put in the movie was when Jack, Ed, and Bud are all getting together and figuring things out and coming together as a team because it's very wordy and that just doesn't work in a movie. No, it was a lot of exposition and it was stuff that you kind of already half knew just watching them put the pieces together. I thought that the coming together of Bud and Edmund in the movie was better. They had this fight and then they, you know, they will draw on each other and then they realize that they've been set up to kill one another. I, I do like when Ed and Lynn see each other and they're both been beaten up by Bud. Yes. <laughs> Just a moment of solidarity. Um, she was much tougher in the book, too. Yes, she was. And she, well, she was away. She seemed like she was higher up on the food chain. Um, and, and because there's a whole other side plot, Sid, hush hush, has files on everybody and all their bad secrets and has this file on the big V, Vincennes. And so when he dies, um, Vincennes takes all of the files that are left in his house because Vincennes finds him and steals all the files except his file's not there. Then he finds Lynn. She's got his file. So like, and she's got carbon copies of it and yada, yada, yada. And they have this whole like, they have to have a stalemate because he's like, I won't tell your secret if you don't tell my secret. And so she had a lot more to do in the book. She was way higher up and way, definitely not an she innocent. She wasn't just a romantic interest no. and there for men to fight over. She was a high level part of that corruption and Pratchett's, you know, Pratchett's ratchet. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Both Inez and Karen both had much bigger roles in the book than the movie. And so I get that you have to trim people down. And and some of that makes sense. Like putting Bud White's former partner into the night out to be one of the people dead so that that's his motivation to really figure that out works. Mm-hmm. It's better than having this random guy we've never heard of before but happened to be an ex-cop. And then and then to have the other guy who was killed in the night out be impersonating another. And then there's this whole other subplot I didn't even touch on that was in the book where these two printer guys are, are come forward and they've got part of the information. And then... One of Ed's, like, fictive kin uncles, a best friend of his dad, admits at the end of torturing and killing them? I mean, oh my god. It's so so much. (laughs) My summary is pages long. I'm glad we went with yours because mine would have probably been 30 minutes. And then this happened. And then this happened. And oh my god, here's another plot of stuff that happens. Yeah, it was, it is a lot. So... Again, I think that the adaptation was incredibly well done. I think the movie was tight and well written. I liked the the what they added in with the Tomas Rolo Tomasi. I liked that addition because that was a really quick and easy way to both show that Jack Vincennes and Edmund have reached some kind of understanding. And also to, like, be the little thing that Jack says, then lets Dudley Smith say the thing to Edmund, so he starts to get suspicious. Like, that just saved so much time and energy, and it was really well done, and it is, like, this idea of the person who gets away with it. And in the movie, the person who gets away with it is actually Ed. 
he's now become Rolo Tomasi. I keep wanting to say Tomo Rolasi or something, <laughs> but yeah, Rolo, like the like the candy, Rolo Tomasi. Yeah, there's, it's a little bit hokey Hollywood that Smith is the one who confronts him. So in the book, it's his father that says, are you going to be able to shoot a man in the back? Are you willing to plant evidence? Are you willing to do all these corrupt things? Because... That's how justice really gets done when you're a cop. Mm-hmm. Although irony, you know, Bloody yes. Christmas happens like right after that, which was a real incident mm-hmm. that El- Elroy used for this novel. Yeah, and the big mob guy who's actually in prison for most of this novel, but is important, but obviously did not make it into my recap for reasons, is also based on a real guy. And then there's one random bad guy who was sleeping with somebody who looked like Lana Turner, who was killed by his Lana Turner's... Uh, daughter but also not in the recap because oh my god but also based on a real person so Mm. holy smokes but yeah they basically took the captain parker preston exley and dudley smith and smushed them all together in from the book to make dudley smith in the movie thank god yeah so uh smith is the one who confronts ed and says well can you do this and can you do that and of course at the end he does against smith and so a little bit of irony but i don't know to me but before that, he actually, because that's not the first time he shoots an unarmed man basically almost in the back. He shoots the black kid, he sticks the shotgun in the elevator and blindly yeah. shoots and the kid dies. So, yeah, you know. and I don't know. That rec- resonates a lot right now. Yeah. Considering that we're having more media attention on how cops are treating black citizens and yet not enough media attention on how cops are treating a lot of black citizens. Yeah, the the whole part about them railroading these black youths was was troublesome. And then when you realize that these, these black youths aren't innocent. So that's an interesting choice too. Again, like I said, the fact that Elroy made Inez a college student to punish her, it felt like. But then he also, it's not just that these are... T- like three black youths who may or may not have been shooting their shotguns off in the park, you know, and joyriding around. No, no, they're all gang rapers. So then gang bangers and gang rapers. So you don't feel as bad about them getting killed. Like that seems almost like justice that they die because they did such horrible things to Inez. So they're not blameless. But how different would it have been if Dudley Smith had blamed you know, because he didn't know that they had been gang raping. They just knew that they'd been shooting their guns and it was an easy patsy, an easy thing to blame. Yeah, Inez is much more sympathetic in the movie. It, she has that really spurt moment where she's tied up. She sees the cop and she just kind of eyes the guys over that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and then she says deliberately, well, you weren't going to do anything. So, yeah, I let you kind of think this way. Mm-hmm. Because she knows that, you know, a gang rape of a Mexican girl... Is and she's not a college student, really, in the movie. They don't make a big deal about that. She's just some, you know, um, is not going to get attention and is not going to get police involvement. But the night owl thing will, which is valid. But the fact that Dudley Smith was basically setting up three guys and then to make sure that we as the audience don't feel too bad about that and don't get stuck on that, make them gang rapers. It's a weird way to put it, though, right? If you if you gang well, rape, you're a gang raper. But that sounds like you're raping the gang. I Whatever. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just... Sorry. It's a weird... They're gang rapers, but I... Sure. Okay. They're They're rapists in a gang. Rapists. Yes. Just call them rapists, I suppose. But... You you derailed my train of thought I did. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Oh, okay. So, book movie difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Book, there is a lot less sympathy for every single character. And the movie, you're kind of rooting for... Ed and Bud, and you want Jack to win, and they're kind of assholes in the beginning, 
But you sort of like them and you want them to succeed. Well, they all have this moment, right? Like They all have something redeemable. Right. Jack is like, oh no, and he tries to stop the setup, you know? And and then, okay. And Bud is like, he has this pillow talk where you kind of get his backstory and you feel a little bad for him, you know? And he's not quite as... And, oh, and he's standing there in the rooms where he's beating people up, but he feels bad about it. He looks at himself in the mirror. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I um, a berserker bud when I yeah. did my recap thing. Okay, which just makes me think, we just recently showed my child uh, the third of the original Star Wars movies, right? Uh, Return of the Jedi, right? And at the end of Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader... Spoilers, guys. Okay. At the end of Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader changes his mind at the last second, saves Luke, kills the Emperor, fine, and then basically gets forgiven for all the shit he's done. Like, this is a mass-murdering fiend who killed children, who killed people, who killed and killed and killed and was responsible for other people's deaths and looks like, it's cool, man. You're fine. Like I a love whole you. Planet. Like a whole planet. Like a whole was planet. Yes, okay. So many people dead on this guy's watch. Okay. And, and, earlier on, we have Yoda and Obi-Wan who both, like, right at the moment that they're gonna die, they give themselves into the Force and they get to be ghosties. And they get to, like, hang out in the ghosty plane and, like, talk to people and hurrah, because their bodies have disappeared. That's not what happens to Darth Vader. He fucking dies on the little rampy thing, okay? So, like... I don't care. Like, I just, I hate this idea that, like, at the very last second, you get to be like, oops, sorry, oh, God, maybe I have a little tiny twinge of regret, but then you don't actually have to, like, make amends, and you get forgiven. Oh! It's been a while since I saw the film, but doesn't Darth Vader also get to be a ghost? Yes! (laughs) Sorry. Would you be pissed off as a ghost that, oh, God, I have to hang out with you now? Right, and like that's cool now because then the last thirty seconds of your life, you were like, "Huh, I'm gonna choose this person over that person," and also kill. Like, okay, you know, fine. The, maybe the emperor needed to die. Okay, we're going off on a major. We tangent. really are. I'm sorry. My point is that Bud is a bad dude in the book who gets forgiven for no apparent reason, and in the movie, he's not as bad. So it makes it easier to forgive him. There's a lot of stuff that they do to try and make these characters more palatable. Mm-hmm. So one is that Ed is killing armed people. In the book, they were just like hanging out. Yeah. You know, they're not doing anything. They were just hanging out and he just flat out shoots them. I think one of them was asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Like was laying. They had head. their hands out. They're like, please yeah. don't shoot us. And in the movie, he does run and he shoots them. But yeah. It... Oh yeah. One of them had a gun and they shoot back. There's another yeah, cop they... who's killed. Right. It's a thing. Yeah. They definitely lessened the the icky of all the characters to make them more palatable. And and they got rid of, like, Jack's whole backstory to so make him more palatable. That okay. I always found sort of interesting about noir is noir is not a genre for everybody. Um, for people who hate Gone Girl because there's no likable characters, you're not going to like noir. <laughs> noir is all about bad people but having interesting stories that happen with them. Mm-hmm. So there aren't likable people. There there might be some redeeming moments here and there, but by and large, they're all awful. Right. Sam Spade's not a good dude. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. And and that, that makes for interesting reading. You're like, okay, so I guess Ed's our protagonist because we spend the most time in his brain and he like is the one who's alive at the end and is obviously going to continue the story. But yeah, it's like watching Breaking Bad and you're like, okay, I'm watching... And you're the protagonist, but you're definitely not the hero of this piece. 
Yeah, I I just like you said, I love Jack's character much more in the book. Yeah, because of because he has those falls, and you're you're just like ugh. But oh, he man. tries. But he tries, and then he's you know, and he. Ugh. And as so, soon as Karen left the note, and she was like, "I miss you, and I love you, and let's go on vacation." You're like two weeks away from your pension, and like we're gonna go to Hawaii and like rekindle our romance and like be married in the, in the purest sense, and blah 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 blah. And I love you, and I forgive you. I was like, "Oh my god, he's gonna die." <laughs> <laughs> So what do you think about taking out Walt Disney? (laughs) (laughs) The whole Disney aspect. That was fine. Because it would have been too much. But I I love the guy who dresses up as as basically, yeah, their version of Mickey Mouse. Mouse. Because he has some really great lines, too. I was a little disappointed they took out um, Bud's whole, like, needing to find the prostitution killer guy. Because that is an aspect that, you know, I mean, it fit to his character and stuff. Although when that character, there was a character got introduced early on, he's like, a jazz musician, black jazz musician playing in a band named Spade Cooley. And I was like, really? (laughs) Oh my God. Are you okay? Okay. And then for a little while, like you think Spade Cooley is like the guy who's been raping and 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 brutally killing these prostitutes. And it's not, it's this other guy. And then like, Bud like basically beats him to death with his hands. He has a weapon. He tosses it aside. And then the guy shoots him in the face. I'm like, Oh my God, it's so graphic. But and Bud is actually the one who puts together some stuff while he's in the hospital. He keeps trying to do this V sign, and that's when well, Ed finally gets oh Victory Hotel, Victory Hotel, because he'd put all of his notes in the Victory Hotel, but he couldn't talk anymore. And I guess yeah. he couldn't write. He could make a V with his fingers, but he couldn't take a pen. I don't know. Well, unless they give him a pen, was I feel like this little gesture that I'm making right now. Okay, this is one thing, but this <laughs> is another thing, and let that. Okay, means... you at home, use your imaginations. <laughs> my fist is moving up and down, and now my fist is moving side to side. I feel like if he'd made the up and down motion, Edmund would have left the room. But if he made the side to side motion, Edmund might have handed him a piece of paper and a pen. But whatever, he's doing V for victory. No, it's actually Victory Hotel. That's where all his notes are. Edmund puts it together. Edmund gets a credit for putting a lot of this together, but he needed Bud's notes, and he needed the very long-winded random-ass confession of Walt Disney slash Ray like and that and that guy too was like oh you're here you want to hear the whole story let me tell you this whole long conflict that there's no possible way that you could have put together like here's the thing you read it's, it's like Agatha Christie right and there's like clues and if you actually pay attention you could figure it out along yeah. with Miss Marple is that what her name is it's been a long time since I've read an Agatha Christie novel. And like Pierrot, too, I think, right? Yeah. Like, if you pay attention, you could figure this out. This one, there's no way. No, there's you, no as an way. Audience, you, there's no way. This is you not a mystery that out. you can solve. You can right. figure so out something that's very convenient. And, and Ed doesn't even have to interrogate this guy. We've even built up the whole book about how he's such a good interrogator. He basically like, hey, guy, tell me your story. And Ray's like, okay, I'm old. I'm going to tell you my whole story. And then he does, and then he commits suicide. Well, that was tidy. I almost feel like the last hundred pages of this book was Elroy going, oh, crap. This book is really long and I need to finish it up. <laughs> Better well, tie it all up. And then, tie up those loose ends. But I want the novella, the side novella of Inez, Disney, and Preston. Just because what the fuck with their relationship? Oh. That's... Yeah. So, okay. And, okay, so she's a rape victim, but she was a college student. She doesn't finish college. He gets her a house, then he gets her a job, and then she's, like, suddenly, like, the key PR person for 
Disneyland and like she's amazing at her job and she's so good and so well respected and has like this close personal friendship. But you with still Will- can't marry her because she's Mexican. Because she's Mexican. And and also and like but she has this close personal relationship with both Ed's dad and Walt Disney. And I was like, okay, if she didn't like Ed because Ed treated her like a rape fit, she basically only got that job because of nepotism. And then I felt like she was sleeping with at least one of them, if not both of them. Mm. I don't know if they were sleeping together, but I definitely think she was sleeping with Preston. But that's what I'm saying. I, I kind of want the novella of that arc because, Ugh. Jesus, what the hell happened there? I don't need to live with an as anymore. She... I felt the worst. The character I felt the most for was Karen. Hmm. Yeah, because she's really is the most she's innocent. She's like the most innocent. And at the beginning with her and Jack, Jack wants to be the hero because he kind of puts on this persona of being this hero and she buys it hook, line, and sinker. And then he's like, crap, I actually need to be this hero. And he tries really hard and he's always scared that he's going to mess up and she's going to learn the truth. And then at one point when he gets drugged because another side plot, there's this magic heroine that can mess with you and blah, blah, blah. And he's on it. And so he's confessing to everything and telling his whole life story and explaining all these horrible things he's always, he's ever done. And da, 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 da. He's like in this weird altered mental brain set. And Karen's there and she hears all of it. And she makes Edmund promise to tell Jack that she didn't hear it because she knows that Jack doesn't want her to know about his past. And so like, she loves him and she, oh. Yeah, yeah. and he kept digging in himself deeper with the Hush Hush magazine, mm-hmm. trying to get money to be the guy for her. Yeah, yeah. And then was really drawn to the porn stuff and didn't want to be drawn to the porn stuff. And mm. Yeah, Elroy certainly does love dropping enough descriptions that your brain goes into odd places of, huh, so that's a thing. Just the way he described, oh, yeah, there's guys and guys. And, you know, this person's with the donkey. and it's Oh, just... yeah. And this mother and son having sex on roller skates. Also something I didn't cover in the recap. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of talk about transvestites. And there was a line, you know, um, I think it was Ed. It was right before the Night Owl murder where he's going through the police log. And transvestite judo chops somebody. And that was yes. like a Oh my god. So there are little moments here and there that went... A lot of, uh, a lot of gay men in this, and not just in the, in the prostitution racket, too, but just, you know, gay guys living their lives. Well, Hollywood. That's, yeah, yeah, um, Simon Baker. And the bull dyke, Dot, who worked for the prison, who was also, not in my recap, but like, you know, was a quintessential part of this, who ends up getting hung because, you know, um... murdered because he's tying up loose ends and yada 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 is definitely a part of this so like there's another woman who i mean okay fine i just i think that the the subtitle of this episode is going to be not in the recap (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i I had prepared a you know recap just in case because and then plus i want to have my own plot so i know what's going on we both do that i think i think yeah yeah and so one of them i had just wrote Okay, I'm skipping over a lot because there's there's a lot here. It's just too much. And yeah. if you think that this is the pared down version, this is getting rid of all the stuff that he didn't think was essential plot wise, and it's still that complicated. Yeah, it was, but it was good. I I have to say, I really, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was really tightly written. I thought the characters were good. It's beautiful. The music's fun. All sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm a fan of the movie, and I'm not sorry that I read the book. I just really wish the book had been shorter and more streamlined. Um, 
one thing that bothers me about Elroy is if you look at the noir tradition, if you look at like Raymond Chandler and some of those authors, there's a distinct anti-authoritarianism to them. Mm-hmm. They don't like cops, but they kind of don't like everything. It, it's it's all it's everything's dirty. And I get the sense from Elroy that even though he knows that these cops are being brutish and terrible, he still really respects them. Mm-hmm. And in real life, that's not a bad thing um, for cops who really deserve do. it. Yeah, but you know when when you're holding up people as heroes when they're doing terrible, really terrible things, that is troublesome. Well, do you think he was actually holding Edmund up as a hero? I think there's a certain tone that he has for these cops where he respects them a lot, even when I, they're doing terrible things. I feel like he. It's one of those. Um, Okay, in the queer community, we say, I either love you or I want to love you. Like, either, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I either, like, want to be with you or I want to be you. And sometimes that line is really hard. And, like, you end up in a relationship with somebody or having a one-night stand with somebody or being best friends with somebody because you can't quite know where that line is, you yeah. know? And I feel like that, I feel I feel like Elroy has a hard on for cops. Yeah. And whether that's cerebral or physical. <laughs> and I mean, not to say that everybody does this, but people who tend to be overly homophobic and especially writers. You think the lady doth protest too I, much? I kind of, I mean, that that's just me. <clears throat> I do like that term, though. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, so some other themes. We talked about the oh, facades and masks that we wear, like in terms of like the percent, you know, what we put out versus what is reality. We definitely saw that with Jack. We saw that with Bud. Not as much. But we saw it with, like, the prostitutes with their mm-hmm. physical faces actually being That is changed. a central theme to the movie. Definitely. Definitely a central theme in the movie. And, um... It's not I thought the most they, original, but it was well executed. Definitely well executed. Um, the fact that secrets will burn you, I think, is a is a theme and a kind of a lesson here. Like, you can't... You can't really bury things. Like, that was... Jack's whole thing was trying to keep his secrets buried and he couldn't. And Edmund had his secrets, but because he was so comfortable with, like, this version of the truth, this version of the truth, this ver- he didn't really seem to spend a lot of time worrying about other versions of the truth. Like, oh, this is the one we've all accepted? Move on. You know? Like, yeah, so there's some stuff that feeds his inferiority complex, like his war hero thing, but it's not something he really dwells on. It's just, like, right. kind of a background... Part of his character, but yeah. definitely, he's not losing sleep over the war stuff anymore. I did love that um, Lynn could play him. And she was one of the only characters who really could. Yes. Magic vagina. <laughs> um, let's Vaginas see. Vaginas are pretty magical. They really are. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So secrets and, you know, eventually stuff is going to get found out. Eventually somebody, even if it takes three of them, are going to put the pieces together. Even if it's the most spaghetti plate convoluted plot line ever. Honor was a theme here, you know, and the idea of, of what is an honorable man and what is an, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of briefly touched on, but not nearly as much as the idea of justice, absolute justice. And I feel like Ed doesn't really know what absolute justice is. He mistakes that for ambition. We talked about that mm-hmm. a little bit. Bud's version of justice is death, right? Yeah. And there are times he gives no compunction about anything. So No, it's just, it, it, he's judge, jury, executioner, and then justice has happened. And there's some pretty dark lines in the book. So when they say, yeah, we're going we're, to we're, use all force necessary mm-hmm. uh, to, to get these guys. And he's like, yay, we get to kill them. And it's just, oh, so cringy of just 
I know it's 1950s. I, I know that he's going for something really gross there, and it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the glee with, yeah. with which some of these cops went after the black and community. Sorry for the epithet. There's a lot of epithets in it, and so I want to be true to what the novel's saying. I even might though... bleep that, though. Yeah. Just so you know. I'm going to leave in all the fucks, but I'm going <laughs> to... So then we have the theme of fathers and sons. We have with, obviously, Edmund and his father, but we also have with Bud and his father, and Bud becomes his father, not just in, like, doling out violence against the women beaters, but he hits Lynn. Yeah. So he has become his own father at that point, Yeah, that is his breaking point in the movie, too, of, oh, Berserker Bud just really went off the deep end. Although, I don't know in the movie, I wouldn't say, because he's still writing that Berserker thing when he goes to kill Edmund right afterwards. It's kind of like, I can't hit you, because... Okay, but I can go hit this guy, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna go kill him. And he was basically there I actually to go- really like that scene, just because Ed throws him enough of a line to kind of snap him out of it, uh-huh. and it takes a little while. So he's still running around while yeah, well, it penetrates it, it takes, into Bud's it, brain. His body is still going through the I'm killing you motions, while his brain is like trying to catch up with maybe I shouldn't be killing you ideas. <laughs> yes, it definitely it was some really good acting there by Russell Crowe to like, yeah. the body is still like the momentum, and then the brain kind of catches up, and then, then it kind of has to get reined in, and it is hard to rein it in. The scene in the book where Bud hits Lynn is awful because it's like he hits her, he hits her again. She stood there and and faced into it and took it. And he stopped when he realized he could not break her, which is really unsettling. Well, also considering he beats up people. People to break them, but he can't break her because, you know, okay, like he would have to go to another level, I think, is the idea. And also in the movie or in the book, she's way stronger and way more powerful and way more autonomous. In the in the movie, he hits her and she cries, and then he 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 realizes kind of what he's doing, and then he realizes it's like misplaced anger, and then he goes off to kill Edmund, right? So it doesn't have that same. Well, that's you know everybody does call him a thug, and yeah. you do see glimpses like Jack, Ed, and Bud are all starting to put pieces together at the same time in different ways. Yeah. So Bud's looking at like some of the crime stuff, and he's like. Wait a second, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. So he's got a brain that works, but just, you know, Berserker Bud takes over and that's it. Yep. Okay, so I've got two little things to read and then I have my final thoughts. So this is a great quote and uh, it's from the LA Times. I'll put the link in our show notes. This is the LA Times review of the book. The plot, faster than a stray bullet and equally random ricochets about two police cases, one past, one present, each bearing on the other. And then this is another... Little quote, again, I'll put it in the show notes. Elroy has become something of a big name in novel writing. He has modestly referred to himself as the greatest crime novelist who ever lived. Modest, yes. He gets by on tough guy dialogue, short declarative sentences, complicated plots and subplots, and lots of violence. He also seems to be tapping into a hostility towards what is known as political correctness. His books are full of racial and ethnic epithets. Whether he is criticizing or celebrating the backwardness he presents remains an open question, which I think is what you were tacking on a little bit before. So, Elroy, bleh, the book, uh, and the movie, ee, that's me. Okay, so that was a thumbs down, a thumbs, thumbs middle, middle, and, and a, a thumbs, thumbs up. up. Yes, I'm sorry, we can translate my, my squeals. Would would 100% agree with that. There you go. Yeah. Wow! Elroy is kind of a dick. The book, uh, it feels like if another writer took this book and, and wrote it, it would be so much better if, you know, yeah. somebody who had talent. It's it's when sometimes you have to dis- like separate the author, the writing style, 
the story and the characters. Yeah. Like, the story is good. I would give the story, like, a, a strong B. It just has too many other little things that weigh it down the and distract. The characters are great. But the characters are A's, yeah. I would say. And the story is a B. The writing style, style is like a C. <laughs> or worse, because he's writing this in, in the 1990. Like, he didn't have to lean so far into well, the, the, the charged language. To make it authentic, I, st- I, don't, I don't think he had to be quite so as vulgar. So that's kind of the thing is, you know, death of the author. Do you take the book as its own thing? But knowing Elroy, I, I, I would not give this novel the credit for being self-aware. Yeah, that's that's what. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And so there are moments where, well, wait a second. Inez is a college student. Well, is he kind of being self-aware about how shitty all of this is, or is it just something that he's kind of throwing in there? Yeah, I, I so yeah, yeah. So self-awareness is the F that. Yeah, that uh, drives it all down. And then the movie, I give an A. I yeah. I mean again I was sad about some of the Jack stuff being not there but you know what I have complicated feelings about Kevin Spacey now so it's better that he's not in more of the movie I really thought the acting was superb mm-hmm. and I thought it was tightly written and I liked the I liked that they kept the spirit and and made it better by the additions because sometimes when the, when they make adaptations they only take things out to try to keep the spirit and we talked about this with their eyes were watching God when they added in the scene of the husband, whose name starts with a J, whose name I can't remember, Joe, I think, Joe, is taking off her dress that is like the wrong dress for the situation. And she has physical marks on her body because he and his idea of what she should and shouldn't wear is constraining her and marking her and hurting her. It is a beautiful symbol for what is actually happening in the town, which is not in the book. And in this, we have the Rolo Tomasi, which is a great addition. It helps the plot. It tightens things up. Wasn't in the book. But a great addition. You mm-hmm. don't, you, you know, you can keep the spirit and still add things in. So wonderful screenplay. Oh, guess what? The screenplay adaptation won an Oscar. It was also originally meant to be a miniseries. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So there's supposed to be a new one. I think Keith. <laughs> Obviously, Sutherland... we don't share notes. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What? Keith yeah. Sutherland? And yeah, actually, as oh, a miniseries, as, wait, this would have been Bud? really good. Oh, man. Because I've seen Jack Bauer beat some people up, man. Keeper <laughs> Sutherland is, is good at that. But I will say, we, um, two times, last time you and I were together, we really um, went to task on the Oscars and Gina Davis. But in this case, I would say, I love the fact that the, the screenwriter got, and I have his name, it's in the show notes, the, the Oscar for the adapted screenplay. Not quite sure why Kim Basinger won, but sure. I, I didn't even bother to look it up to see who she was competing with. A lot I don't of that care. is just politics. Yeah, There's that's... a lot of films that, you know, you look back right. and go, yeah, that really did but not deserve. I definitely think that this this adaptation definitely deserved an award. Okay, so 2003 TV pilot, Jack was Kiefer Sutherland. Wait, 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 wait. Jack was Kiefer Sutherland. Okay. And what was the other one? Josh Hopkins was Bud. And David Conrad, who I am not familiar with, was Ed. Okay, so Josh Hopkins. Uh, yeah, I'm not 100% sold on that one. So there's also a He's... 2018 TV pilot. No, there's a reason this didn't get made. Thank goodness. And then who was the guy who was supposed to be Ed? David Conrad. So there's also a 2018. No! <laughs> no! No! So there's also a 2018 TV pilot with... Stars I have never heard of, but that's not saying a whole lot. Okay, no, no. I am glad they did not do this. Please don't reboot this movie. <clears throat> also, random trivia. So the Black Dahlia is also in this series. Yep. 
And I know it's a film. It's also a film. And I'm just going to say right here for the record, no, I don't want to do it. Please, you can't make me. There's so many other good books and movie combos, Jennifer. However, if you want to be a patron... Yes, fine. And you donate... X amount. X amount! (laughs) You know, how much can you buy Kalia? How much can you... <laughs> Apparently, my reading and watching and judging is for sale to our patrons. They, if you would like to, well, you know what? We should do that. We should make a thing. We say for $20, you can pick our next book and movie combo and we will do it. And even, how about this? We'll even let you call in and have your own three and a half minute spiel where you can you can share what you think. $25. Yes. $25 for the one-time lovely prize of $25. Your voice on our podcast, and we will read and watch the book and movie combo that you pick. And now that I've said it out loud, it's going to have to happen, and we'll see if anybody takes that up on it. God, I don't want it to be Les Mis. I don't want it to be... But don't tell the people what you don't want, because Warm you know peace. we have asshole friends out there who are going to be like, he, 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 Anna Karenina? Shush! Stop! Hey, if you say Fifty Shades of Grey, I swear oh, to God, fuck. I will beat you. <laughs> beat I, you like Bud White, baby. <laughs> do I get to beat you since you get to say it? No. <laughs> Save that for later. Okay. Um. Pages of Popcorn podcast was brought to you today by racism, misogyny, crime, corruption, heroin, prostitution, drugs, blackmail, police brutality, and um, coffee. Yes. Thank you for listening.